Informant podcast should not be interpreted as legal advice and are intended for general information purposes only. Welcome everyone to today's podcast. My name is Danielle Smith and I am the firm's director of marketing and a member of the firm's diversity committee who is responsible for bringing you today's special podcast. I am honored to be joined today by John Lasseter, a partner in our firm's Jackson, Mississippi office. John has a special story to share with us today about his involvement in the retirement of Mississippi State flag. I am sure most of you have seen this story all over national news over the last several months, and I am personally excited to hear more about John's story. So welcome to the podcast, John. Hey, Danielle. Thanks for having me. It's my first time speaking on a podcast. I've listened to quite a few, but uh, thanks for having me. We'll try to make it as easy as possible on you, John. So why don't you tell our listeners maybe a little bit about yourself and your path to Burr? Well, sure. I, I, I consider myself a homegrown Burr attorney. I clerked here for two summers uh, back in, in 04 and 05 and then came to work as an associate in 06. Uh, so I've been here now, what, 14 years, and uh, it's been great. I've progressed to partner. And I work in the construction practice here at Burr and do all sorts of commercial litigation as well throughout the Southeast. Thanks, John. So before we kind of begin our story here, I want to set the backdrop a little bit and tell me maybe what it was like growing up in Mississippi and kind of how you viewed or, or perceived the state flag. Sure. I'm a sixth generation Mississippian and a Jackson native. I grew up around downtown Jackson. My grandfather actually owned a, a longtime bar and restaurant here in Jackson called Martin's. So uh, it, it doesn't get more Mississippi, I think, than myself. I've been here my entire life. Growing up, you learn in Mississippi history and in classes that you take in school about the state flag and about Reconstruction and some of the historical elements of this. And, you know, it, it's kind of taught to you that the flag was just adopted it's symbolic of Mississippi, and as a white Mississippian, you grow up and think, well, that, that flag just means Mississippi to me. It wasn't until later in my schooling, I guess, uh, high school, that I, I started to really focus in on the Confederate flag. And It is within the old state Mississippi state flag, the Confederate battle emblem is prominent therein. So when I started to kind of look at the history of that flag and and what it stood for, and ultimately how it had been appropriated by different groups over Mississippi's history, that's when it kind of started to, to resonate with me that it didn't make a lot of sense that that was a flag that was still representative of our state. So I think around college is where it really, really started to become an issue for me and one that I had to look deeper into. So talk about the effects of the you know now former state flag had on Mississippi as it relates to, you know, the economy, population growth, and the state sports industry? I guess going back to, to your previous question, the issue of the state flag really became a prominent issue in 2001. There was a, a popular vote between a new flag that wasn't very inspirational. It, as a brand, it was just pretty mundane as a brand. And so, you know, when they lined that up against the old flag, I'll tell you, as a college student, I thought the new flag would be adopted by popular vote. And so as a 21-year-old, you know, I went to the polls and actually voted in this. And then that evening came to find out that the old flag was voted to be kept by roughly 65%. And it was at, 
at that point that I really started to look into what tangible effects the flag has and ultimately this idea of harboring some of the Old South and some of the ideas of the Old South here in Mississippi and how it adversely affected the business community. I guess I really didn't grasp it until I became part of the workforce, but you know, the reality of my firm and the reality of my practice is I work with a lot of people from all over the Southeast and these other Southeastern markets have grown. And why wouldn't they, you know, here in the deep South, I mean, the weather is really good. And and a lot of people come here from other areas of the country to build lives, but Mississippi hasn't seen that type growth. In fact, growth has been as little as anywhere else in the country. So when I started to put all this together, I thought, well, you know, the flag, certainly inhibits growth here. I believe it has an effect. And I don't know that politicians adopted that idea for quite some time, but I was in a group last year called Leadership Mississippi. So I was in the class of 2019 of Leadership Mississippi. And in one of our events, uh, and we went all over the, the state and we learned a lot about different regions of the state, different cities within the state. But when I was in Meridian back last summer, a group from Stennis, a group from Mississippi State came and spoke to us. Uh, And they mentioned that young people, and there's this idea of brain drain, we use that terminology over here in Mississippi, brain drain describes the notion that young people, 22, 23, 24 years old, that they leave the state. Well, this group that came to speak to us, they said, look, you know, we are losing young people at a rate of 10,500 a year, somewhere around, around that number, net loss. So four year educated young people. 22, 23, 24 years old, they were leaving the state at a net loss of 10,500, more than the state gained. And that was a really, really sobering statistic for me. Uh, and so while, while I was impassioned about the flag and certain issues you know, related to that beforehand, when I heard that information, you know, me and the class began to talk about it. And it was really, really a passionate issue that we dealt with. So you know, is the flag the only reason for the state's lack of growth sometimes and, and, and some of the issues over here? Absolutely not. Is it a con- Does it contribute to those things? Yes, it did for a number of reasons. And I'll tell you, you know, I have a client that I dealt with for a number of years. They built a, a $6 billion plant just north of Mobile, Alabama. And one night I was sitting and talking to a friend of mine within that organization. And he had asked me, he said, you're from Jackson, Mississippi, right? And I said, yeah. He said, you know, I've been there twice. One time, you know, I was riding through to go to Memphis in May. And, and another time I was there to to review a site that we had picked out just south of Jackson, you know, we were considering coming to Mississippi with this plan. I said, really, that's news to me. He said, yeah, we considered it. And, and there were a number of reasons we didn't come. I don't want to make this just about the flag. But he said, you know, one of the reasons was workforce. We had some concerns there. But another reason is, and you have to understand this, if we had a labor issue on site, or if we had somebody die during the construction because of a workplace accident or something like that, you know, we're a German company and the German media would take, they really would, they would take a swastika and they would stick it right next to your state flag and say, why do you think this company put their, uh, you know, put their manufacturing facility here? You know, and that was the perception and a deal that we didn't want to deal with in the process. And I thought, my God, you know, that really speaks to me. So that those are type examples that I see issues that we've had to fight through with the state. I mean, there's so many good things to talk about within Mississippi but, you know, here we are having to talk about the flag and the brand of this state, and it comes up first, and it's just not a good look for us. Yeah, and, and tell me, and I know we'll get into this later about the NCAA, but kind of talk about, you know, maybe the effects of the sports industry in Mississippi. Well, 
and I knew this as a young person and somebody that really follows sports, but the NCAA had always had a rule over here that said that we couldn't host certain postseason events if the Confederate battle flag was was a significant you know, part of your state flag, or I mean, that wasn't the exact terminology. I think it was more that if it flew over the state capitol or or had a prominent display, you know, at the capitol. So certainly that was the case for Mississippi. And um, in 2001, when that vote, that popular vote I was talking about had taken place, the NCAA also adopted a policy that said, you're not going to host men's basketball regionals, women's basketball regional finals, and, and NCAA football bowl games. So those are three really significant postseason type events that the state couldn't host uh, ultimately because of this rule. So I'd always, I was always familiar with that rule uh, coming up as a huge sports fan, and I knew that it, it had to do with the flag. But I'll tell you, for a number of years, I hadn't really given it any thought because once you go 20 years without hosting those type events and you don't invest in those type facilities and things like that, it really became something of the past. I don't think anybody within the state was ever considering that we could host those type events because it had been so long since we had done so. Yeah, and you, I know you and I have chatted about this on the phone, but tell me about, I think there was a leaders meeting where I think you initially kind of, you know, stood up and really publicly kind of spoke up about this issue and kind of challenged the group you were with that, you know, we needed to do something about it. Can you tell me about that story? Yes, and that wasn't ultimately me that came up first to talk about this, and I'll tell you why. That goes back to my leadership Mississippi class. We had some great conversations about keeping young people in the state of Mississippi. And I'll tell you, Danielle, that's something I'm really passionate about, and that kind of prompted this whole movement related to the state flag, at least as far as my uh, participation in it. So a lot of people know the story of the change of the state flag. I don't think a lot of people know, you know how it came about behind the scenes. And I think if I go back to that leadership Mississippi class, you know, once we realized that the state was losing as many young people as they were, we began to have conversations about how to combat that and what young people want to believe about the place they live. And I think if all those conversations could be, you know, summarized, I think ultimately at the end of the day, young people want to be able to live and work and be themselves and be celebrated and not denigrated for being young and who they are. And they want their community, you know, to live that. And so when we were having these discussions within my leadership group, the state flag really never came up over the course of the year. I was fortunate enough, my class had elected me to speak at the graduation of our of our leadership Mississippi class back in December. So the night before we had a little event, in my office and 40 people showed up for a, kind of a workshop on a volunteer basis to come together and talk a little bit more about a class project, something that we could do to help keep Mississippi's youth here. And although the state flag had come up a little bit over the course of the year, it was at the end of that meeting that somebody stood up in my class from Renaissance Bank and said, look, the state flag, it needs to change. It's holding us back. And when he said that, he said, you know, we should adopt that as our class project. And when he said it, I thought, Okay, we're going to change the state flag. Let's cure cancer while we're at it. It's like, I mean, this flag has been flying for 126 years. And so, you know, we said it and we kind of internalized it. And I'll tell you, people went through the room and everybody to a number in that class that was there that night had an impassioned speech about why they wanted the state flag to change. And I'll tell you, before that night, 
I would have put, you know, support for changing the flag at roughly maybe 65 to 70% of the business community. But I'm looking around this room and 100% of the people there wanted the flag change and were really vocal about it. And when they went there, I went home that night, I had to give a speech the next day and I totally rewrote my speech and I rewrote it to address the state flag and the fact that it holds us back, the fact that it's divisive from the moment that we're all born here in Mississippi. And I'll tell you as an example, and this is an example I gave at the speech, you know, if you've got a Little League World Series team, right, from Mississippi, Greenwood, all right, 10 black kids and two white kids, and, and they, they run the gamut and they go straight up to Williamsport and they can represent Mississippi. And this speaks to me as somebody with young kids. They can't even wear the state flag on their lapel, you know, or the, the old state flag without wearing the emblem that has terrorized generations of their family. I mean, that's just the, the absolute truth. So I told that story during the speech. And, and at the speech, it was at, it was at the Weston downtown Jackson. There were about 300 people there, business leaders, politicians. I gave that example. And then I told the example of my client who said they couldn't come here, at least in part because of the stigma of the state flag and how it resonates as a symbol and what it means to other people. So when I told those two stories, there were audible gasps within the room and it became real and personalized, you know, for some people. And so when I left that meeting, I mean, the support was overwhelming throughout that room uh, from my class. You know, we continued to talk about it and try to think of, of a way to make it political or, you know, to incite some political movement that could make a flag change. So when I left there, I began talking to people. And at some point in the days after, I went back to thinking about the NCAA's Confederate flag policy ban. And when I started thinking about that, I started digging in and I wanted to call some people the NCAA and learn more about it. And the ultimate goal was I knew that if the NCAA would expand that policy and if it would cover you know, all sports, including college baseball, I mean, that was the idea that, it, that if we could get it to be expanded, that it would ultimately create a political climate where politicians would have to make a move. So that idea came about after that speech and in talking to some folks and thinking, you know, we don't have a lot of cards to play here, but sports mean something. It's a really huge deal here. I know it's a really huge deal where you are. And sure enough, that was the idea. And I began cold calling people at the NCAA. And when you and, you know, the other folks in your leadership class, when you guys were kind of having these conversations, I mean, what would you say you thought was a realistic timeline for change? Uh, you know, a year, two years, or did you even think it would ever happen, especially given, you know, that it had been outvoted before? Yeah, and that was a really big problem for flag change. The idea that what previous political regime had decided to make it about a popular vote with the people. And, you know, when that happened in 2001, you'd hear a lot of old flag supporters say, hey, we've already voted on this. And, you know, that being what it was, and look, I mean, the conversation about the state flag, it took place all the time over here. But the idea was, I mean, there's just no political reason to change it. You know, there's no, I don't want to say reason. I want to say there was no political motivation to change it because really it's an unpopular, even today, probably would lose by popular vote. I would think, you know, roughly 58% probably would vote to keep the old flag even still today. So I know that everybody thought it would change. I think that there was a real question as to whether or not it would change in the next 20 years. You know, when we're having these conversations, I think a, a realistic timeline was somewhere between 10 to 15 years. Now, the NCAA, for me, when I started to have conversations with them, that number changed for me. And 
I thought if I could get the NCAA to do something, that could create a change within two or three years. But never did I think it'd be something that could happen so quickly. So tell us about kind of how you, you know, reached out to the NCAA and how enlisting their help kind of really helped strong arm this initiative through. Well, the first call I made was three days after I gave that speech. I called a gentleman, Jose Rodriguez. He is a a president at a school up, up in the Northeast. And he was on a committee related to diversity inclusion within the NCAA. So they were focused on athlete participation and inclusion. And, you know, his information was on the website. So I just cold called him on the way into work one day. I had the kids in the back and they were screaming. (laughs) He could barely hear me, but I've been about five or seven minutes going through you know, what my passion was and, and the idea that I had kids that I walk them into school underneath this flag every day. They have no idea what this flag is or what it means. And I told them I, I really wanted it to be changed for their life. I mean, I really wanted to grow and at least relate Mississippi to a symbol that they didn't have to be embarrassed by or concerned with. And so that was my ultimate motivation in calling them. And then I told them about my idea that, you know, I thought that if the NCAA would take a policy that was already on the books and expand it, uh, to encompass all sports, including college baseball, that it would it would create a, a real economic impact here and a social impact here that would drive change. And so when I explained that to them, you know, I think it's hard for anybody outside of the Southeast to understand that college baseball is a thing. But I'm talking to them about, you know, weekends spent in Starkville and Oxford and, and Hattiesburg when schools host these NCAA regionals and these super regionals. And I'm just telling them about you know, how we all make a weekend out of it, how we go up there, you know, how everybody, I mean, the the local vendors, you know, make so much money on these weekends. And he's kind of, he's starting to conceptualize it. And he said, look, you know, I love all this. I love your passion. I love how you're thinking. It's a long play, you know, but I have the person within the NCAA that you need to talk to. And so he sent me a contact information for Amy Wilson, who uh, is a manager of inclusion with the NCAA, and she's awesome. She was incredible to talk to about it. I eventually got up with her in late January, her and her boss at the time, and and we walked through it and my idea, and she was all ears about it. There were some bumps in the road throughout, but as soon as I got an audience with her, and I thank Jose for that, it was something we, we were able to move on. What were some, you know, kind of challenges or roadblocks along the way, you know, working with the NCAA that you thought, you know, this, this may not happen? Well, within the NCAA, I never got the sense that it couldn't happen from Amy. I take that back. You know, there was one time where she mentioned to me that they really aren't able to move until a member institution comes in and asks for an evaluation of a policy or, you know, for, for them to review a policy. So, you know, when she said that to me in one of our initial calls, I was thinking to myself, I can't imagine State or Ole Miss or Southern ever calling me as an NCAA and being like, hey, take college baseball regionals away from us, right? That's not going to happen. And so, you know, I'm talking to her about that. And, and finally, I said, you know, I have a hard time believing the Confederate flag policy was adopted because a member institution brought it up to somebody. I, I really got to believe the Board of Governors or somebody, you know, did that on their own and realized that it was in the student athlete's best interest. So, you know, that was one of the initial conversations we had. And when I had that conversation with her, she went back and did some digging about the, the policy itself and determined, yes, that was an action of the NCAA that wasn't promoted by any member institution. So that was kind of the first roadblock we got over. And once she got there and we were able to deal with that kind of standing issue, then it became about waiting until the, the right time. You know, we wanted this whole approach to be even politically. You don't want to go too hard 
on something and have like some backlash. And so we wanted to be very even about the approach. But as I looked at the policy and I got some backup information about it, I really began to think about the impact that the policy had already had on Mississippi. And so through my conversations with Amy, we're talking about this. And it dawned on me that that we've got a policy on the books that doesn't allow Mississippians, one of the most diverse states in all the country, with the largest black population percentage-wise in the country, you know, we can't even host bowl games right now. And we can't host NCAA basketball tournament games. You know, these are high-level games. They're highly competitive. They're highly watched. They're visible. And they're great experiences when you go to. I don't know if you've ever been to one, but I've been to, you know, NCAA basketball games in person in Memphis and New Orleans, and and they really are great events. And I thought to myself, man, by not allowing Mississippians to experience that in close proximity, I mean, you're really disengaging, you know, a group of youth and young people and urban kids who might would otherwise see this as, as an opportunity for them. And so it's really having a negative impact on participation of athletes. And then when I really started to think about the policy, and I hope I'm not going too technical in explaining the policy, the previous policy that the NCAA had, it still allowed for these regionals. So there's the loophole. It allowed for college baseball regionals. It allowed for women's softball regionals, tennis regionals, and a number of sports. And the difference was those are on-campus events that are earned over the course of the season by a certain team. So if Mississippi State has a great year in baseball, they get awarded by the NCAA, a regional site. And so that was a loophole that existed within the previous policy. And I told her, look, so long as that loophole exists, it's going to be ineffectual in promoting change here in Mississippi. And so, you know, we kind of walked through it together. And I told her, look, I've looked even even further into this. And it concerns me a little bit that we have a policy in place, you know, we being the NCAA, that allows for these sports like baseball, tennis, and volleyball. And I went back and looked at the NCAA's own information. I mean, these are majority white participation sports. I mean, overwhelmingly majority white. Those sports are allowed to have postseason play here. And then contrast that to football and basketball, which are majority black sports, with 65 sometimes percent participation being African-American. And I said, look, you know, it almost looks like there's a substantive discriminatory effect here because if, if you're a kid from Provine here in Jackson and you play football and you go to Southern to play football, you know, you've got to play your bowl games off in another state. Family has to travel. Uh, and everything else. But if a white athlete, a white baseball player from Water Valley, you know, you can go right up to Oxford and, you know, you can play every meaningful postseason game you want to right in front of your mom and dad, you know, who only have to drive 15 to 20 minutes to get there. You know, that's the policy we have on the books. I mean, we have to we have to relook at this. And I think that was compelling to her. And I think she started to look at it because I tell you, nobody is more passionate about student athletes and their experience than Amy. And when she looked at the policy from that side, she said, you know what, you know, this really does have to be indiscriminately applied to all athletes if we're going to have it on the books at all. It was at that point that she said, John, you hear, I'm going to go to the Board of Governors. They're going to have a meeting in April. You know, we need a former and current athlete to send a statement or, or tell us about, you know, their experience and how this impacts their experience. And so meeting was supposed to happen in April. This was March that her and I are talking by now. And of course, then COVID happens. And so everything kind of got tabled for a period of time. The the NCAA Board of Governors, they were meeting on numerous other more pressing issues at the time, uh, including canceling the NCAA basketball tournaments. And so they didn't have their April meeting. 
And really, I didn't talk to Amy for a number of months. So all of April, all of May. And then in June, you know, the protests began all over the country. And certainly, you know, there was the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that was going on at the time. You know, it kind of brought some of these issues back and to the forefront in my mind. And I reached out to Amy one day and I said, look, you know, there's a political appetite down here for change. I've never seen before. And I reached back out to her and said, hey, you know, can we relook at this? Can we expedite? Is there anything we can do? And she said, hey, I, I'm, so, I'm so glad you reached out. I was thinking about you. Yes, I do think there, there's something that can be done. I'll, I'll get back to you uh, next week. Keep me abreast of what's going on on the ground about a movement to change the state flag. So that's the best I can do explaining February, March, April, and May, and then into early June. Well, and, and tell me, Given the events that happened in June, you know, what after that, talk about, you know, when that final decision kind of came down and what the future of Mississippi state flag, what it looks like now. So early June, I think there was a local publication that did a story about the legislature looking into the state flag and possibly changing the state flag. And there were a number of different avenues that could take place there, but there was a a terrific, you know, march that happened here in Jackson that weekend. It was peaceful and well attended. It was in everybody's consciousness, but Mississippi Today is the name of the publication. They came out with a story saying, hey, you know, these new protests, they've shed light back on the state flag. And some politicians are looking into possibly changing it. They're meeting over the weekend, things like that. Well, I told Amy and we decided, hey, let's wait to see, you know, what happens with this movement because this organic movement would be the best case for changing the flag. Maybe that goes on for a few days. And then at some point it became clear that state leadership had put it into a committee, the Con Law Committee, and that ultimately in doing that, any change of the state flag was effectively dead. So I reached out to Amy because that was a really tough day. And I thought to myself, and we actually had this conversation, you know, if if leadership is not going to change the state flag amidst all that's going on in this country and the most socially cognitive movement that I've ever seen in my lifetime, and certainly that we've seen since the 60s, you know, I don't know that they'll ever change it on their own. And so she and I kind of had that conversation and she said, are you ready to try to do something in short order? And I said, yeah, I do think that the legislature had been gone because of COVID. They'd come back. They had a couple more weeks in the session. And so I told her the timing was right and may never be better. And so she asked me to get as many, you know, I'd already had conversations with, with former athletes about this, but she said, get as many current and former athletes together as you can and let them address the issues that you and I've talked about. Let them address it to leadership at the NCAA. And I believe that there's an audience here at the highest level to consider this. So I spent the next couple of days getting signatures together on a statement to the NCAA, and she told me to send it before Juneteenth. We sent it the day before Juneteenth, and it was received. And then it was three and a half hours later, Danielle, that the SEC came down and said that they're no longer going to allow championship events to happen in Mississippi so long as the state flag is flying. And the very next morning, the NCAA made their announcement on Juneteenth. It was one of the proudest moments of my life, but they made an announcement that they were going to ban all postseason activity until the state flag was changed. And I'll tell you, that was a Friday. And I mean, everything else that happened after that was an overwhelming support of changing the state flag. I mean, so, so that wasn't the only thing that happened to change the state flag. And I don't want anybody listening to this to think that I'm saying that. It was a, it was a spark and an event that happened 
that really gave, it gave politicians, you know, a whole new perspective because it gave a tangible economic impact. I mean, millions upon millions upon millions of dollars would not be spent in this state. I mean, this state hosts NCAA regionals annually. They got really good baseball programs here. So the politicians were faced with that. So over that weekend, you know, many politicians that had been on the fence before they came out and supported the flag change. Mississippi State's All-American running back, Colin Hill, he came out that Monday and he said, look, I'm not playing until that state flag changes. The very next day, the Mississippi Baptist Association, the most powerful religious organization in the state, comes out and they give a, a statement about how the state flag and changing the state flag is a moral issue that all Christians should undertake and support. When I watched that press conference, that's when I really knew it was going to be real and it was going to happen because you have to understand the impact that association has throughout the state and that message had to reverberate. So I was sitting in my office watching that emotionally, just thinking how far we'd come in such a short time. And from there, it was really the business community and the group that runs uh, Leadership Mississippi, the Mississippi Economic Council. I mean, every meaningful business leader in the state you know, signed a statement saying, quote, it's time, end of quote, to change the flag. And that was a beautiful day as well on Wednesday. And from there, uh, the political leaders of this state, including Philip Gunn and Delbert Hoseman, Philip Gunn's the Speaker of the House, Delbert Hoseman is the Lieutenant Governor. I mean, they whipped votes uh, within, within their, you know, two bodies. And over the weekend is when the big vote happened. They had to get a two-thirds majority in both bodies in order to even get it out of committee so it could be considered. That happened that Saturday. They got the vote, overwhelming support, both houses. And then the next day was a vote that only required a majority vote to retire the state flag. And so that was kind of an afterthought after the Saturday vote and just a day of celebration for everybody that wanted to see it come down. The governor signed the bill the next Tuesday retiring the flag. So you know, when you, when you look at that timeline, the vote happened eight days after the NCAA's announcement. And one other thing that happened during the course of all that is every Division I coach and athletic director in the state, they ascended on the Mississippi Capitol on that Thursday before the vote to lobby for change. So what you had here, I mean, these are, these are really public figures, just like in Alabama, when they came here, I mean, the whole state's watching this. Everything was really exciting at that point, but it was eight days later after the NCAA's announcement that the vote happened to retire the state flag. So that's kind of the background of how things happened. And I was just excited to be a small part of it. So remind me again, what was the time frame from when you spoke at that graduation till, till Juneteenth? So I spoke at the graduation on December the 6th, I believe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my first contact with the NCAA was, was three days later. My first time to talk to Amy was January 20th. It was actually my birthday. I was in the, media, in the middle of a mediation in Atlanta when I got 15 minutes with her. I first gave her a written statement in February about all the reasons the flag should change. Of course, you know, in March and in April, things, things slowed down because of COVID. And in May and then in June, you know, we reconnected thanks to the material event of Black Lives Matter and, and this fight for social justice, that really changed everything because the NCAA wouldn't have moved as quickly as they did without those protests and without the injustices of this country, uh, you know, light being shined on that. So, you know, it's roughly six months. We got, we got the state flag change in six months. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was just talking about how, you know, Politically, I mean, six months is, is such a short time frame. And I know there were definitely, you know, contributing factors here. But, you know, kind of when you take a step back, 
and considering everything that has happened, I mean, you literally cold called into the NCAA and, you know, just from there, I mean, did you have moments when you're kind of like, I can't believe this is actually happening. Like this is actually moving forward. (laughs) I, I, um, pretty much every day (laughs) I was was thinking, I can't believe this is happening. Um, you know, towards the end there, I knew that the idea at the beginning, I grew up in small town, Mississippi. Okay. I know countless Mississippians on all sides of this issue, you know, even, even my own family. And so, you know, I was indoctrinated into college baseball at an early age and I haven't missed a, a regional at Mississippi state in my life, probably. And so I knew it was a big deal. And I knew people that felt that way about college baseball like I do. And so the idea was that I was going to really, you, you hear it all the time when people support the old flag versus versus change. And they say, well, that's our heritage. We're not going to dump history. Nobody's trying to do that. But people say heritage and they scream it like it's really, really important to them. You know, and, and it is to some people, misguided or not. But what my idea was, is I was going to put college baseball and this love for college baseball, which is a sport that no one else in the country cares about. <laughs> I was going to make people have to decide between that sport and sports and this heritage, you know, that they deem so important in support of the old flag. And I knew in my heart that a lot of people would say, look, dump the old flag. I just want my sports. And if that's true, it was never that important for them to begin with. And so that was the idea initially. And I really thought it was going to move a lot of people that way. Not the, uh, you know, most, um, um, I, I don't know, most comforting way to kind of view it. But that's kind of how I looked at it politically. But then I started to realize that, I mean, there was a real tangible economic impact. And one of the reasons that supporters have always been able to keep the old flag is they say, well, there's no proof that it hurts us. You know, there's a lot of that conversation going on, too. Well, all of a sudden we supplied some tangible hurt. You know, we supplied some tangible economic impact. And I think it was important. And, and the idea was, look, that, that economic impact was going to show itself every May when it was time for regionals to be announced. Uh, and it was going to continue. So every time the legislature showed up next January, you know, they were going to be faced with more and more pressure from people all over the state about losing those events. And so that was the idea that it was just going to hound them every January to where they'd be forced to make a change eventually. Of course, nobody could have ever considered you know, the impact of of the death of George Floyd and others and just the, you know, the consciousness of this country and how far we've come and how much further we have to go, but how far we've come in a short time. So, um, yeah, it's uh, I pinch myself sometimes even looking back. I can't believe it. I I laughed with a buddy of mine talking about it. I was, you know, the saying is I love when a plan comes together (laughs) and there will never be another plan that comes together quite like this. So, um, yeah, it worked And, and they don't all work, but it's proof too. And I mean this, and I, I don't know that I believe this before now, but maybe I underestimated the impact people can have because <laughs> it was just an idea. And it was an idea that I had as a lawyer because the discrimination impact of, of the policy was kind of something I came up with on the fly. I think it's real. I think I think it was true. And I don't know without my legal background and without the support and the training of this firm that I could have had that idea come to me. And even then, the ability to follow through with it and be supported you know, by colleagues, be supported by my leadership class and be supported by other Mississippians, uh, it made it really easy to try to follow through. But yeah, once I started getting some traction and I, I, you know, sometimes change starts with a cold call. And when I say start with a cold call, you know, that's where it started. But then I'm reminded, you know, of all the people 
that and all the things that had to come together to make it happen. And especially with the NCAA, I needed standing. And so the 31 individuals, the Mississippi athletes that I contacted over that two-day period and that I, I walked through them with them, my idea and, you know, the notion of addition by subtraction, the notion that if we didn't have these baseball tournaments uh, in state, it could actually help us achieve this goal of changing Mississippi's flag. And they bought in. And look, I mean, they, they would they would come in and offer to sign it. And then some of them would drop out. Some of them would come in. And, and uh, it was a crazy two days. But but we got there. And I can't thank them enough for being willing to take that ride with me because the NCAA would not have moved without the standing you know, they created. So I want to, I want to thank them, uh, thank them for having the vision with me. Uh, thank them for signing, you know, the initial statement. As far as where the state goes from here, you know, Mississippi still has a lot of work to do like we all do uh, in understanding, you know, social justice, you know, criminal reforms that people talk about throughout this country. I think they're needed, but, but, you know, my idea began with trying to convince young people that Mississippi could be adaptable you know, that Mississippi leadership could change where change was needed. Uh, and I believe the changing in the flag is something that proves that. It's the first step to making this a better place and the first step to making a lot of the changes that are needed. So as far as the process for the flag, uh, there's been a commission appointed by the lieutenant governor and by the gov governor and by uh, the speaker of the house. There's nine individuals that have formed a commission. They are going through uh, various uh, designs right now. I think 3,000 designs were submitted. They've narrowed that list to about 10. They're going to decide on uh, the top five here on Tuesday, and then we're going to vote on the design that they uh, that they pick out in November. And if that if that design gets an over 50% vote, then it will be adopted as the official state flag. So that's where we are in the process, uh, and I think we're all really excited. It's not it's not every day that you get to. Uh, pick a new flag in modern times uh, that's representative of your state, but that's exactly uh, what the commission is doing right now, and and I'm just excited to see what they pick out. But that's that's what the future holds. Well, listen, I I think that kind of wraps us up for today. Thanks, John, for joining us and and sharing your story. I always enjoy chatting with you, of course. <laughs> Thank you, Danielle. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay. Um, so thanks everyone for, for tuning in today. Be on the lookout for future podcast episodes brought to you by Burr and Foreman's Diversity Committee. We are actually launching a women's podcast series very soon. Uh, in addition, Burr has a library of podcasts available on various legal topics such as e-signatures, labor and employment, and we have a weekly Take 5 podcast, which gives you the top five things you need to know each week as it relates to immigration. You can find these podcasts and other information about our firm at burr.com, B-U-R-R.com. Thanks, everyone.